Well, good morning. Welcome again to TBA. So glad that you could be here to worship with us today. I'm Brian Legg. I'm part of our lead pastor team here. And I've really missed you guys. I've been out quite a bit here recently. Our family's kind of been going through a whirlwind of stuff in the last few weeks. And it's really good just to be back and kind of settled in this morning. Two weeks ago, I found out that my grandmother's health had taken a turn for the worse. And so we made a really quick trip to West Virginia to spend a couple of days with her. In fact, we got to spend her 89th birthday with her. So that was pretty cool to be able to celebrate. And we made it back just in time for Easter. So I was here Easter Sunday morning. And then two days later, we got the call that she had passed away peacefully that morning. And it was a little faster than we expected, but it really was a good thing both for her and for our family. And so back to West Virginia, we went and we were kind of in a whirlwind through last week. Huge thank you to Stivey for stepping in last week. I was supposed to speak last Sunday and he was going to be up this week and we just kind of swapped. And so I appreciate him doing that to allow me to be gone. I got to actually conduct my grandmother's funeral last Sunday afternoon. And that's Not the easiest thing to do, but it was really cool because I have a very unique perspective that probably nobody else could share. So really enjoyed that and was glad to have that time. I share all that with you because I want to share a little bit more of some journey that I've been walking on for the past several weeks with you today. And I think it'll give you a little bit of context into some things that God's been speaking to my heart over the last month, but then specifically as I was reading in this week's reading, um, just some things that he's been teaching me. And you know, when God starts teaching me and it hurts, I figure it's only fair that I pass that along to you, right? (laughs) So here are two key things that grabbed my heart um, as we read this past week. It kind of connected dots for me and where my story's been going. And the first is how much struggle and persecution the early church went through. And I don't think we stop and think about that very often. But as I read through these eight chapters of Acts, you see constant opposition, constant cause for fear, constant literal persecution of the early church, and even death as a result of their faith. The early church didn't have it easy at all. And I sometimes wonder, why is it that we think that following Jesus will be simple? It'll be easy, be smooth sailing. We might not say that because we kind of know better logically, but I think we still think that most of the time. If I'm following Christ, everything should go well. You know, Jesus himself told us that in this world, we will have troubles, but he also reassured us that he's bigger than any of our problems. Like you see in John 16, take heart because I've overcome the world. The second thing that stood out to me hugely in our reading this week was about the unity of the church, but the unity specifically around the idea of prayer. The early church was unified, especially when it came to prayer. In fact, Luke found it really important to highlight all throughout the book of Acts how the church prayed, how they came together for that worship and prayer time. You see the formation of the first church at the end of Acts 2, and one of the specific things that he tells us there is that they were devoted to prayer. Then in Acts 3, Peter and John are on their way to pray at the temple when they come across a man who's been lame from birth, and they end up healing him, and of course that leads to their arrest and to persecution. Go figure. You do something good, you get persecuted for it, right? They're released, they immediately gather with the other believers for what? To pray. To pray for courage, to pray to be bold, to pray to continue sharing the gospel even in the face of the persecution. Chapter 6, the early church appoints seven leaders to handle what we would call the food pantry, the distribution of food to the widows and those who are in need. And the apostles pray over them and lay hands on them as they begin that ministry, ordaining them for what they're going to do. But more importantly, there's emphasis placed on the reason for appointment in the first place. They were being appointed to that position so that the apostles could focus on prayer and on teaching the word. They were making sure that they were doing what was important. 
Then in chapter 7 this past week, we read about Stephen, and he prays as he's literally being killed by those who are persecuting him. They're throwing rocks at him to kill him, and he's praying for them, praying that God would not hold that against them. And it goes on and on and on. There's prayers for the new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. There's prayers for courage. There's prayers in the midst of persecution. There's this constant focus on unity and on prayer. By the way, just total side note, but if you're interested in traveling with us in January, I'm going to be leading a group from TBA to Israel again in January 2020, where you can see a lot of these places that we're talking about, reading about in the book of Acts, especially as we walk through this. There's information out at guest services and on the little table in the lobby that you can get. And then next Monday evening, we're having an info meeting on the 13th at 630 here in the auditorium. So I would encourage you to check it out if you're interested. Now, let me try to connect the dots for you from my own life over the past few weeks and what I've been reading and how this has kind of played out for me. So about two months ago, in our reading and then in my prayer journaling from our reading, I became convicted that I was not fully trusting God the way he wanted me to. Now, don't get me wrong, I have an absolute foundational trust in God that assures me he'll take care of my needs, he'll meet those things, I know I'm good with that. But if you know me very well, you also know I'm a little bit of a control freak. I battle that constantly. I'm a fixer, which is a talent that God has given me, but it gets me in trouble a lot of times because my tendency is to try to fix things in my own power and strength and my own ability before I turn to God and show dependence upon him and seek his will. Maybe some of you can relate because I know some of you are control freaks too. So as I was journaling that morning about my struggle with trust, I made what I now see as the obvious mistake of praying that God would help me to learn to trust fully. (laughs) Even as I was writing that in my journal that morning, I was thinking to myself, I'm not going to like how this goes. I know it wasn't really a mistake, but it sure feels like it. It's kind of like praying for patience. You may need to be careful what you pray for because you may not like the way God teaches you that thing, right? Anyway, one of the main areas that I struggle to trust fully is with my finances, probably like most of you. I trust him enough in order to tithe regularly, 10% off the top, every paycheck, no questions asked, been doing that forever. I even trust enough to give beyond my tithe, the ministries like what we have in Honduras or the other things that come up along the way as God leads me. Not such a big deal, all good there. Where I struggle is in the day-to-day kinds of things. It's when he asks me to do something big that doesn't seem to make sense financially, am I going to be obedient with that? Or it's when we take an unexpected financial hit that wasn't in the plan, wasn't in the budget, and there's things that get a little tight. It's when there's something that I sense him calling me to do, but the funds just don't seem to be available to do that, and you're wondering, where's that going to come from? How's it going to happen? So just after praying that prayer in my journal for God to teach me to trust him fully, guess what? Life started to happen. And just like I was afraid, it was literally, I think, two weeks after. Sherry and Avery were rear-ended up here on South Florida just a little bit after that time, and the insurance company's first response was, it's a total loss. Now, keep in mind, this was a van that was new to us. wasn't new, but it was new to us, and it had almost no dents and scratches or anything in it as compared to our old van that was all beat up, and we had just given that away, and so we were excited about this car. And there were all kinds of details to figure out and work through with the insurance company, but it boiled down to this. My response was, not in the budget, not in the plan, not in my plan. Okay, God, I'm trusting you. I don't like this, 
I surely don't understand, but I'm trusting. A couple weeks later, we're coming out of our second Tracedius weekend. I'm on a spiritual high, but physically exhausted. And I get the news about Mama's health, and we embark on this unplanned trip to West Virginia. Again, not in the budget, not part of my plan, not expected. Okay, God, I'm trusting you. We go in two different vehicles, our whole family kind of splitting up and, and going up. So dad and Alyssa and I are driving up together and he had actually just had surgery the day before and so we had to stop overnight and kind of let him rest up. And, and we stop in South Carolina that night to stay in a hotel and literally as we walked in the door of the hotel room, my phone rings and it's my wife. Of course, I'm thinking she's just calling to tell me how much she loves me and how much she misses me. I've been gone all afternoon. No, she's calling to let me know that our AC at our house is broken and is no longer working. I went, really, God? This isn't even funny. What is up? Not in the budget, not part of my plan. You ever feel like you're in one of those seasons where it's not just Murphy's Law moments, but it's kind of like Murphy has moved in and is staying? I was starting to feel that way, you know? So The day we left for West Virginia was a Wednesday, and I had dropped Alyssa's car off for what I thought were going to be some very minor repairs that needed to be done. Thursday, while we're on the road, I get a call from my buddy who does all of our mechanic work, and he lets me know that there's several more serious issues with the car that are going to have to be taken care of. Of course there are. Not in the budget, not in my plan, but I'm still determined I'm going to trust. We get back from West Virginia. Three days later, I get the call that Mama has passed, so another trip to West Virginia. Not planned, not in the budget. Okay, God, we got back late this past Monday night. We tried to settle in and kind of get back on some sort of normal schedule for this week. And Tuesday afternoon, we're trying to do laundry and stuff and catch up from all the traveling. Our clothes dryer starts making this terrible screeching noise. Come on. We just got back in town. So I spend all evening, Tuesday evening, watching YouTube videos about how to repair the dryer. I'm online ordering parts and trying to figure out when am I going to disassemble my dryer and get all this stuff repaired and put it back together so we can do laundry and get back on track. Then Thursday, we got some even more difficult news, and I'm not even going to get into the details of that. I'll tell you some other time. But suffice it to say, it was another hit to my financial plan, and it was disappointing news in general for our whole family. Now, the good news is, We aren't bankrupt. Thank you to Dave Ramsey and FPU and the planning that we've learned to do. But in reality, what happened, and I didn't even realize this until I looked back this week, was God allowed a series of circumstances to completely drain one specific account that I had set aside and been putting money into for quite some time for a couple pretty specific purposes, things that I thought God was laying on my heart, and now it's gone. I had a plan. I was in control. No more. Okay, God, help me trust. See, I was saving that money for things I sensed you leading me to do. Now you're going to have to provide in some other way. And I see it. I ask for this. This is my opportunity to depend on you and learn to trust more and more. If I'm being really honest, Thursday evening I was feeling pretty defeated. In fact, part of my prayers were something like, God, I don't know how many hits, more hits we can take, not just financially, but emotionally. I'm tired, and I don't understand. See, I'm really big on routine. I like to do things a certain way. I've kind of got a plan for everything I'm doing, control freak. And 
normally on weeks I'm speaking, by Thursday afternoon, probably around lunch, I pretty well have the message wrapped up. I know where I'm going. I'm just buttoning up details, and everything's good. This past Thursday evening, I still wasn't even sure what I was going to talk about. Had no idea. Okay, God, I'm really trying to trust, but I'm struggling. So each night when Sherry and I go to bed, we read the same very quick devotional for the day. It's called Ending Your Day Right. And I think it's by Joyce Meyer, if I'm not mistaken, but it's just a little app on our phone. It's literally like two paragraphs with a verse. And it's just something to kind of set my mind right before I go to bed. And so that evening, I pull out the devotional, and I want you to keep in mind everything that I've just shared with you, what we're walking through, how I'm feeling. And this is what I read Thursday night. From Psalm chapter 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And then here's the thoughts underneath it. When you feel down, everything around you seems to fall apart, and you begin to lose your strength. Your head and hands and heart begin to droop. Even your eyes and your voice are lowered. Okay, I'm feeling that. You are downcast because you're looking at your problems, and this only makes you feel worse. Sometimes you're tempted to say, oh, what's the use, and just give up. But God is waiting for you to lift up your eyes and look to him for help. Life will always bring discouraging situations, but you don't have to let them get you down. Despite life's distressing circumstances, you can be confident in the Lord, the lifter of your head. Lift up your eyes, hands, head, and heart, and look not at your problems, but at the one who has promised to see you through to victory, Smile, it will lift your spirit. Now, I'm not usually an overly emotional person, but as I read that, my eyes filled with tears. Because it's not coincidence that I read that devotion that day, which, by the way, these devotions are dated. In fact, all I do is open the app and hit today, and it pops up with that day's devotion. And so it was obvious that God had orchestrated that for me for that day. I couldn't have searched out anything any better to read for how I was feeling in that moment. God was speaking to my heart and reminding me that he is trustworthy and I need to be looking at him instead of whatever problem may be surrounding me. And in that moment, I reflected back to what I just read in Acts earlier in the day in my studying. Stories like Peter and John, who are doing good, but they're arrested and flogged because of what they're doing. And yet, even in that moment, God used that to spread the gospel even more. There in Jerusalem, he brings Peter and John more into the spotlight where they have more opportunities to preach and to teach and to spread the good news with those around them. And it calls many to come to faith in Christ. Then you have the story of Stephen who is literally stoned to death because of his faith. How could anything good come from that? He's the very first martyr for Christ, but yet God uses that terrible tragedy in order to fulfill his purposes. I don't know if you've paid attention to this, but if you read in there, it tells you that right after Stephen was killed, all the believers scattered. And guess what happened when the believers scattered? The good news was carried into Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus had said it was going to be. But it came out of persecution. It came out of Stephen losing his life. From the very beginning of the church, as we know it, there's been opposition to the gospel and opposition and struggle for all who are following Christ. But in those moments of opposition and struggles where Christ shows up in the most amazing ways and God's purposes are fulfilled. It's something I can trust him because I see it all throughout the story of the Bible. It seems like God shows up in the biggest ways when his people are the most desperate for him. 
In fact, it seems like most often it's the moments where he is all they have, their only hope, that's when they realize that he's truly all they need. Why would my life or experience be any different? Why would your life or experience be any different? And I'm not even being persecuted for my faith. I'm just going through life, stuff that happens to all of us. I wonder, why is it that we so often equate God's love for us with how easy or how difficult our lives are in that moment? You ever notice that? Things are going great. My friends and my family are all healthy. I've got money in the bank. Everything's good. God must really love me. But when Murphy's Law is in full effect... When everything seems to be going wrong, when our loved ones pass away, when someone's sick, when things aren't going our way, when everything breaks, well, God must not really love me right now. You ever feel that? See, if we're honest, I think most of us who call ourselves followers of Christ can be really fickle about our faith at times. God's not just good in the easy times. He's good all the time. God's control and his power never change. It's our perspective that gets off track. And as I was reflecting from that devotional Thursday evening, I flashed back to two different things that I had found in my grandmother's Bible last week when I was preparing for a funeral. And it was things that I used in her service. And the first was this handwritten quote, just on a little piece of notebook paper that she had ripped out of a book somewhere. And she put this in her Bible and it said this, we spend money we don't have for things we don't need to impress people we don't like. Now, I don't recall exactly where that quote comes from, but I've actually used that before. And I think I could argue with all honesty that everything that I was spending money on over the past couple of months was not really frivolous stuff, and I definitely wasn't trying to impress anybody with the stuff that was going on. But I know why my mama had that in her Bible. It was a simple reminder to her of what was really important, and it wasn't money. See, my grandparents modeled a life that trusted God fully, and not just in the area of finances, but every area of their life. They were great mentors in my faith development as a child, and even now as an adult, as I look back at some of my experiences with them, they were great mentors. The other thing I found in Mama's Bible was a bookmark, and it had this long quote, or it might have even been an excerpt like from a book or something, but it was about prayer. And she had gone through and highlighted certain phrases in it, and I want to share those phrases with you. The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. The ministry of preaching is open to a few. The ministry of praying is open to every child of God. Darling, you may have to help me. Tithes may build a church, but tears will give it life. That's the difference between the modern church and the early church. Our emphasis is on paying. Theirs was on praying. When we have paid, the place is taken. When they had prayed, the place was shaken. In the matter of effective praying, never have so many left so much to so few. Brethren, let us pray. As I was reflecting on those phrases, it was that third one that really grabbed me. And here's my interpretation. We can build a church building in our own strength and with our own money, but that's not the church. The church is the people who are depending on God and walking in devotion to him. 
The church is those who are praying first and praying often, constantly seeking God's will and his guidance for their lives. The church is those who are willing to stand against whatever opposition or persecution may come their way because their faith in God is bigger than the fear of their circumstances that they're facing. You and I are called to be the church. It's not about this place, this location. It's not about this organization. It's not about the ministries that we may or may not offer. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about you and me living sent as the hands and feet of Jesus and voice of Jesus in order to carry the gospel into the world around us. See, I look back at the lives of my grandparents, and I know they were prayer warriors. They modeled that over and over and over for us, times that I didn't even notice as a child, but now looking back, I see. I remember being at their house on numerous occasions where the phone would ring, and it was somebody from the church prayer chain calling to let them know about some need that was in the church, and they would stop everything they were doing right then to pray. It didn't matter if they were in the middle of dinner. They stopped, and they prayed together for it. I watched on many other occasions where they either prayed on their own or prayed together or led others in prayer. Prayer was a huge part of their lives, and it directed their lives. And I think that's what it looked like in the early church, too. See, that first real picture we get of the early church is found in our reading this past week, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. There's several other verses right after this that paint even more of a picture of that early church, talking about how they were unified and they shared everything as there were needs in the church. And there's all this stuff that it shares. And it's all a beautiful picture of the church. But I want to focus on just this one verse today. It says they devoted themselves. Now, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word that translated as devoted because I listened to it a hundred times online and never even came close. So not even going to give it to you today. But here's what I want you to hear out of it. There are different ways that the word could be translated, or maybe better said, different ways it could be defined. And I want you to have full understanding of the meaning of this. So that word that's translated devoted could also say to be devoted to, to attach oneself to, to attend constantly, to be busily engaged in, or to persist in. This is a picture of true devotion to these things. Not half-hearted, not when it's convenient. It's a driving determination and commitment. And to what? What things are they devoted to? Well, the first thing they're devoted to is to learning or to the apostles' teaching. I think it would be easiest just to say they were devoted to learning everything that they could about Jesus and what a relationship with him meant in their lives. They were hungry for the gospel. For you and I, this could look like a lot of different things. Maybe it looks like personal study. Maybe it's participation in a small group or in a D group. Might be walking with a mentor, a one-on-one kind of relationship where you're being discipled and learning. It can mean attending other classes to gain other teaching or doing things that help you develop your faith. It might even just mean coming eager to learn on a Sunday morning. See, this wasn't just something the early church was doing. It was part of who they were. Life revolved around this, not the other way around. It says they were also devoted to fellowship. And the word there is koinonia. That's the Greek word, fellowship with both God and man. If you've been around for a while, you probably remember we did a whole series about koinonia, talked about it for about a month. 
And this is a picture of real relationship with one another, but more importantly, it's a picture of relationship that is centered around God. It's, it's kind of like the picture of the cord of three strands that's not easily broken, where God is that binding factor in the relationship. And it might be three or more people in the relationship, but God is the central factor. And one of the ways that koinonia was practiced was in the breaking of bread, it tells us. And there very likely is a, a dual meaning in that. In fact, the, the phrase breaking bread was used two different ways to depict things. One was a common meal, just like getting together for lunch or getting together for dinner. And then the other was specifically for the Lord's Supper, to be able to worship and celebrate what Christ had done and remember that. These believers were not doing life alone and trying to figure it out on their own. They were walking together with other believers. They were walking in true fellowship, koinonia. God is their focus, learning and sharing in life together. And then the last thing it tells us they were devoted to was prayer. And I think we would all agree that prayer is a very important part of our faith journey, of relationship with Christ. But I wonder, would you describe your prayer life with the words that translate it as devoted to in this verse? Think about it. To be devoted to prayer. To attach oneself to prayer, to attend constantly the act of praying, to be busily engaged in prayer, to persist in prayer. See, I'm not sure I could say that about my own prayer life on any kind of regular basis. Do I have a discipline of prayer in my life? Yes. Would I describe it like that? Not nearly as often as I would like. Now, some people argue that this passage that we read is describing this perfect picture of the church that's really not fully attainable in a broken world. And this was kind of the honeymoon phase of the new church, if you want to think of it that way. You don't yet see the brokenness of people that are messing it up. And that may be true. And we definitely see the struggles into the church as it continues to develop. You can even see that in the story here in Acts, the, the stories of Ananias and Sapphira, the disagreements over money and food distribution and how they went about that. And then there's all kinds of church discipline matters that are going to come up, not only in Acts, but especially in Paul's letters to the church. See, church is people, and people are broken. No question, just because of sin in the world. So it'll never be perfect until Christ comes again. But that being said... This is a picture of what church should be, and in many ways can be, even in the midst of brokenness. I think the question is, why does the church today look so much different from the early church? We could probably spend all day debating and discussing all kinds of reasons and factors, but I would ultimately sum it up like this, one simple difference. For the early church, they saw themselves as the church. They were the church. Jesus Christ was their identity. When they asked what they needed to do and Peter said, repent, they did. Repent means to turn around. They literally turned away from their sin, turned toward Christ, focused everything towards God and walked towards him. He became all that mattered. And did they hold to that perfectly? No. We see all kinds of mistakes they make throughout the rest of the story. But turning to Christ was completely life-changing for them. See, I would argue that for many of us, Church is not who we are, but rather it's something we do. We attend church on Sunday morning as long as there's not something else pressing that gets in the way. We participate in a small group as long as it doesn't conflict with our work schedule or whatever sports team we're playing on or you name it, any other activity that we're involved in. We're pretty faithful about reading our Bibles as long as we don't have an early meeting at work that day or have to take the kids to school or whatever else it is that might get in the way of our quiet time in the morning. 
I think we've compartmentalized our faith to the point that being the church really is just one small part of our lives. And for some, that part might be bigger than for others, but it's still a compartment that's separated out on its own. It's not the picture of the church that we see in Acts 2 because their identity was in Christ and they were the church. That was what they were all about. Nothing else mattered in comparison. And I'm not just busting your chops here because I struggle with the same things. It's way too easy to allow my identity to get wrapped up in other things that I do. And they can be good things, things like being a volleyball coach or volunteering for the marching band that my girls are in or even being a hog hunter, getting out in, in the, into nature and enjoying things. It can even be in church-related things, being a D-group leader or even a pastor. See, even ministry can pull us away from our true identity in Christ if we allow it to. What I'm talking about in reality is probably less about our action, the things that we do, and much more about the state of our heart and our mind. What's driving the things we do? When our identity is truly in Christ, then our relationship with him drives everything we do. We can still do other stuff, but now it looks very different. Now I'm coaching volleyball on purpose. I'm praying for the team. I'm praying for their families. I'm looking for opportunities to be able to minister to them or share about Christ. My purpose is about growing in relationship with Christ and sharing the gospel with those around me in everything I do. I'm devoted to prayer, seeking God and his guidance for everything, walking in complete dependence on him instead of always trying to fix it my way and then falling back on him when I can't figure it out. Keeping my eyes on him and allowing him to lift my head, as the devotional said. Not focusing on my petty worries and allowing life to overwhelm me, but looking to him constantly with trust that he will come through like he always has. But in his way, and in his timing. It's Romans 12 too. It's living as a man who is transformed because I'm daily allowing Christ to change the way I think and consequently changing my actions, the way I live. See, the early church got that. I wonder, do we? I'll leave you with this question today. To what are you truly devoted Remember the definition of devoted. To what are you truly devoted? What's guiding your decisions? What guides your calendar? What controls your bank account? What controls your worries and your concerns in life? Is church something you do? Or can you say it's truly who you are? Are you living sent? being Jesus' hands and feet and voice in the world around you. Band, you guys come on up. I can't speak for any of you, but I don't want to just go to church or do church. I want to be the church. And I think that's the journey I'm on right now, is just asking God to make me into his church, who he wants me to be. And for me, I know that starts with full dependence and trust in him. See, I knew when I prayed that prayer two months ago about learning to trust God fully that it was probably going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride. But I'm confident that we learn more in the face of adversity than anywhere else. So I'm choosing to trust. I wonder, can you say the same thing? To what are you truly devoted? Where is your trust and dependence? Stand with me. Let's take a moment to pray and 
I would just ask you this morning to respond however God may lead. If you want someone to pray with, we'll be back at Next Steps. We'd love to pray with you. If you want to come and spend some time here at the stage, you can do that as well. We would love to take time to pray with you. But whatever God's laying on your heart, just respond in obedience. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you again for the opportunity that you give us constantly to grow and to develop in our faith and and in relationship with you. And God, I've been reminded quite a bit recently of how you are faithful in all things. And I've seen how you're at work, even in the moments that seem difficult and the moments that cause worry and concern because of our human thinking and our plan. And I'm reminded that you truly are in control and that you're trustworthy and we can depend on you. God, I know that we don't even begin to understand what persecution really looks like. We don't know what it means to have our faith tested the way many believers have over the years. But I pray that even in some of the smallest of circumstances, even in some of the little things of life that happen, things we might look at and call Murphy's Law, that in those moments we would remember that it's you who's in control and it's you who's leading and guiding us and we would learn to depend upon you. God, maybe we would devote ourselves truly to you to walking in relationship with you, to learning more about you, and specifically to prayer, to communicating with you, to sharing with you, to doing life with you. God, if we're not doing that, convict our hearts now. Help us to see the areas that we need to grow and the areas that you want to work on in us. And if we are, God, I pray that we would just spend some time celebrating that. Speak to our hearts now and have your way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.